The chapter that we're about to embark on today is perhaps one of the most beautiful and moving chapters of the New Testament. All the Bible is the inspired Word of God, but there's some portions of it that just stand out to us very strongly. And today's sermon and next week's sermon really do overlap with each other because it's such a powerful theme that flows through both of these chapters. But I have no hesitation in doing that because the message here that John, through the Holy Spirit, is trying to betray to us is so vital for us to grasp. And it's one of the most beautiful sections of Scripture. So let's read the verse 27 verses together. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was ill. So the sister sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. For the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they took that as taking rest and sleep. So he said to them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard the Lord was coming, she went and met with him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes and lives in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, the passage before us today in some ways does not need a preacher because it is like lilying our golden goal that is so beautiful and precious. Yet I pray you would come by the Holy Spirit and help me to open this text. I need your help this morning, Lord. This is a powerful text. So would you come by your Holy Spirit and take me and use me and hide me behind the cross? And for us who are listening this morning, Lord, for your people, you are their shepherd. And may you speak and may they hear your voice and may your good spirit do your work in their hearts. For those who need hope this morning, that your spirit will instill hope. For those who need their wounds binded up, that you would bring a measure of your healing grace. 
For those who are mourning this morning in their grief, again, point them to hope. And if there's any here who do not know you, Lord, as we confront these questions of life and death, may you give clarity and may you present Jesus fully and truly. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Life is a funny old thing, is it not? What's the song about one minute you're riding high in April, the next minute you're shot down in May? We have sorrows, we have joys, we have weddings, we have funerals, we have good news, we have bad news, we have HMRC, we have all these things in life. Life is a funny old thing, is it not? There was a young man who was very rich and prosperous and brought up in this country. And as he was brought up in his teenage years, he was rich and prosperous and grew very arrogant. Life was laid out before him. His father had arranged a job. He was set up. His friends were prosperous. He had servants and slaves. And one day, all that came to a crashing halt as he was kidnapped from his home. And as he was kidnapped from his home, he was trailed against his will to a foreign country, a land where savages dwelt, a land which was beyond the pale a land which he was forced into slavery, looking after sheep, being out in all weathers, rain, hail, snow, being a slave for seven hard, long years. And then one day in this land of captivity, in this land where he was persecuted, where nobody paid any respect to him, he heard the voice of God saying, rise and escape, there's a boat waiting for you on a distant shore. And as he rose and escaped, he got to the distant shore. There was sailors there. He was about to pay his fare. And they said to him, we can't take you. You're running away from your master. We will be put to death if we take you. And life threw him a curveball. And as he prayed to God again, the sailors changed their heart and they let him escape. And after seven years of slavery, seven years of hardship, he returned home. Life had thrown him some curveballs. But then in the midst of this, one day as he was lying in his bed, he had a dream. A dream like Paul when he was called to Macedonia. A dream that came from the slave people who had enslaved him for seven hard years. A dream that said, come back to us, holy child. Walk amongst us again and bring us the gospel. To go back to the place of slavery, of destitution, of hatred, where there was a bounty on his head. What? would he do? Following Jesus leaves us with questions like that, does it not? Many of us in this room have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We have trusted in him for our salvation. We have discovered that there's a God who made this universe, who created all things, who's at the heart of it, a God whom we have rebelled against. And that's why things go wrong because sin and rebellion entered the world, but a God who sent his son, this person today that John's gospel has the flashlight on, this person called Jesus, Jesus Christ the Son of the living God, the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome him, the one who walks on water as if he's walking across a field, the one who heals, miraculously heals, who gives blind men sight, who gives bruised reed hope, who feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, who does amazing things, who teaches amazing things, and who teaches some strange things 
who tells us and has told us thus far in John's gospel that we are to trust in him and believe in him. And time and time again, he has proven his trust. He has earned our trust. He has shown us that he is reliable, that what he says is true. Every word, every word we can lean our hope on. But today in John chapter 11, we come up against the ultimate test. Jesus can heal folk. The Pharisees thought that was great, but they weren't putting their trust on it. Jesus could do miracles. That was great. Elijah and Elisha, they did miracles. This man must be a prophet then at best. But today, Jesus comes up against the ultimate and final test, death itself. Death itself. Now, I know when they say if you're in polite company, you're not supposed to talk about religion and politics, are you? Being from Northern Ireland, that's just an occupational hazard for us. But there's one subject which we don't talk about. There's one subject which causes us to be squeamish, which causes us to look down. Even this morning, I can see a few of you shuffling your feet. It's talking about death, that painful, that bitter, that final enemy. All of us, I'm here of a certain age, I'm sure have stood by gravesides. In 2019, I did 53 funerals in one year. And I stood by many gravesides, comforting many people. There is something tragic and wrong and not right about death. And yet, even in that final enemy, even in that final trial, even in that seemingly unstoppable force, Jesus is not powerless. And as we will see, and let me give you a preview of the end of John chapter 11, we shall see him speak a word or two, Lazarus come forth and death has to surrender to him. This Jesus is unique. So let's look at this chapter as we see how Jesus approaches this final enemy and let's see what we can learn from it for ourselves as we as Christians try to live and follow Jesus. But also for somebody here today, I don't know if you've ever heard about God or Jesus but this Jesus described in this accurate word of God is who he is and what he is about. And I impel you like John to consider him, to consider believing and trusting in him for he is worthy of your trust, even in the final enemy. So let's look at the situation, verses one to six. There was a certain man, Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany was a village about two miles east of Jerusalem. Bethany is actually called the house of the poor. And we reckon it might be in a village that was kind of struggling to get by, but these, this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, seem to be a rich and well-known family who were in the middle of this. We've heard about Mary and Martha before in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus goes for a feed. Mary blows her gasket, or not Mary, Martha blows her gasket because she's too many to feed, and Jesus gently rebukes her and says, Martha, you're worried about many things, but consider one thing that's important. But perhaps you're here this morning worried about many things. There's a lot to worry about in this world of ours, isn't there? You can say yes, it's okay. You may be worried about many things. But let me have your attention for the next minutes or so as we consider the one thing, the one person that is essential. The locks of the problems in your life, the blockages, the heartaches can be resolved in the light of this one person. That's a big claim I make but Jesus is a big saviour. And so in this situation, we find this heartache. We have all been here, have we not? We have lost family. We have lost loved ones. We know the pain of the situation. 
Lazarus is ill unto death. They appeal to Jesus. Jesus, who we reckon is about two or three days away journey. They send to him, Lord, him whom you love is ill. And Jesus says a word of reassurance to the person who comes. This illness does not lead to death. His perspective is different from ours. Lazarus will die, but not ultimately. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This seems harsh to us, that Jesus would, would allow Lazarus to die so that he would be glorified, but such is the importance of truly knowing who God is for this life and the next life. He was going to do a beautiful miracle through it. Jesus' ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. God does not play games with us. That's not what this passage is about. God does not do that. He is gentle. He is loving. He is kind. He is good. But he's also like a wise parent. How many of you here today, parents, would let your kids drink seven tins of Red Bull? Just imagine the carnage, the projectiles and everything. You don't let them do it because it's not good for them. But the kids don't understand that, do they? Why can't I have that extra cookie after dinner? Be quiet, you'll be sick. My mum used to, oh, <laughs> I used to love, I still do love eating cookies and now nobody stops me. But I'm like a wise parent sometimes. God has to do things that we don't fully understand. And we saw this, didn't we? We see this all the time. We read about it even in the history of World War II when, when Churchill and the leaders of the nations had to make decisions that seemed strange to us, but we didn't have all the information they did. And so Jesus here in this does something that seems initially strange to us, that seems like a curveball, that seems like a hard thing, like our friend at the start of the sermon who was kidnapped and taken to a foreign land. It just, why is this happening to me? Why is this going on? But God loves him. God cares for him. God looks after him. So we've got this situation that is murky in verses 1 to 6 that seems unresolved. And John here reminds us again in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved this family. He cared for them. There was special affection there. So verse 6, when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place he was. That seems strange to us, does it not? He loved them. There's no doubt about that. He cared for them. He, he loved them, and yet he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. He didn't turn up and heal Lazarus. He didn't rock in and save the day and lift Lazarus to the grave like he had done so many times to so many people before. No, death took him. Verse 7 to 16, after Lazarus passed, there's this conversation between Jesus and the disciples. Let us go to Judea again. As we've seen in the gospel, the persecution was rising against Jesus. Jesus had upset the Pharisees quite significantly. They were willing to stone him. Every time Jesus walked into a room, they were gathering the stones. The disciples said, Lord, why are you doing that again? And Jesus here in verse, eight, or verse 9 sorry, gives us a reminder that we need to trust him. That what he calls us to is not always understanding things fully, but trusting in the one who fully understands all things. Trusting in the one who is good and gracious and kind. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone, I mean, Dolly Parton's nine to five doesn't apply here. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not him. What Jesus is saying this is, guys, you're trying to understand this world. How many of us like the dark? Anyone here like being in the dark? What's the thing you're not supposed to start a book with? It was a dark and stormy night. Apparently, that's the greatest cliched opening in the world. 
I used to, I used to really love the dark as a kid. <laughs> Maybe it says something psychologically about me. I don't know. But we had this forest beside the house. I used to go running in the forest, and I was, yeah. But the one thing about the dark is you can't always see. And so you stumble and fall, and with our limited understanding and sight in the dark, we end up banging our heads and bruising ourselves, don't we? I mean, just go to the toilet at 4 o'clock in the morning without the lights on, and you'll soon do that. Darkness tricks us. It disorientates us. We cannot find the way. John in his gospel has said time and time again that darkness symbolizes the world's reasoning, the world trying to find out about who God is without the lights on, trying to find our way in the dark as we stumble and fall. But when Jesus comes, he gives us light. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 119? Your word is a light to my feet, a path to my way. Jesus comes and he shows us all things. And what Jesus is saying to the disciples is here, look guys, you can't understand what I'm doing with Lazarus just yet. You don't understand what's going on here, but trust me. Look to me. I have proven again and again I am trustworthy, but keep trusting me. You've seen me last week in John chapter 10 as the good shepherd, the one whom David prophesied about, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even though I walk through the valley off, shadow off, wrong. Shadow of deepest darkness, it does mean death, but the shadow of deepest darkness. King George, the, which one was it? Sixth? Was that the Queen's dad? King George VI? King George VI in the start of war in this nation had a broadcast and he said this, when we go out into the night, give me a light. The poet calls back and says, don't take a light, take the hand of God as a surer and better guide. Jesus calls us to trust in him, to follow him. And so he says, turn around, even though what I'm doing to you seems strange, even though this trust is is feeling stretched, hold on to me because I hold on to you. Lazarus, our friend, has fallen asleep, first 11, but I go to awaken him. Isn't it lovely that he calls Lazarus his friend? It's not beautiful. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this passage, says this, He, Jesus, announces the fact of Lazarus being dead in language of singular beauty and gentleness. Every Christian has a true friend in heaven of almighty power and boundless love. You are thought for. You are cared for. You are provided for, defended by God's eternal Son. He is an unfailing protector who never slumbers or sleeps and watches continually over us. The world may despise you, but you have no cause to feel ashamed. Father and mother may cast you out, but Christ, having once taken you up to himself, will never let you go. He is the friend of Christ, even after he is dead. The friendship of this world are fair-weathered friendships and fearless, like summer fountains dried up when our need is sorest, but the friendship of the Son of God is stronger than death. It goes beyond the grave. The friend of sinners is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That is the Jesus who cares for his friend, Lazarus. And even though Lazarus has slipped into death, he is not beyond the reach of God's Son. Who else can do that? Who else can give you that hope? Who else can give you that assurance that though you die, yet you shall live but the Son of the living God? Lazarus, I, I mean, let's carry on here with verse 17 to 24. Jesus appears at the tomb and finds that Lazarus had been there for four days. Now, I've shared this with you before. How many of you remember the original Star Trek? Bear with me. I'm not losing my mind. How many of you remember the original Star Trek? No? 
Look, Lizzie, you need an education. How many of you remember the original start? Wasn't it great? Wasn't it fantastic? Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock and Dr. McCoy. I loved it. You know, I mean, it's so politically incorrect. You beam down to a new planet and Kirk punches an alien in the face. And Dr. McCoy, I mean, Dr. McCoy is supposed to be this great doctor, but all he seemed to do was appear and say, Jim, that man's dead. Well, that, was his, that was his thing, basically. Anyway, pop up anywhere and he'll suddenly be lying there in bits. Jim, that man's dead. <laughs> if Dr. McCoy was here with Jesus, he would say Lazarus was dead. And the thing is, four days. Notice why John puts in four days there. That doesn't mean much to us. But in Jewish thought and Jewish superstition of the time, they believed that the spirit hung around the body for three days after somebody had died. And after the third day, the spirit was taken up. So what Jesus is doing here is leaving it for four days because there, even in Jewish thought, even in Jewish superstition of that day, there is no hope for Lazarus. As Dr. McCoy would say, Lazarus is dead. That doesn't stop Jesus. Jesus doesn't, isn't bound by superstition. And so Jesus appears to Bethany. And here we see many of the Jews come to Mary and Martha. They were a rich family. They had people consoling them. They had people around them. And when she heard that Jesus was coming, she goes out to meet him. I love that about Mary and Martha. And even this morning, friend, if you are concerned, if you're struggling in your faith, if you're trying to reconcile your faith in God with the Word and all these things, the best person you could go to like Martha is to Jesus himself in prayer. Martha here gets criticized for many things but she gets it absolutely right. In her sorrow, in her grief, in her heartache, she goes to the one person who can help. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. You struggling this morning, friend? You trying to sort it out yourself? Open your heart to the Savior who loves you. Cast your burden on him because he cares for you. You're his friend like Lazarus is. She goes to Jesus. Now, if I saw Martha coming towards me, I'd probably have the instinct to duck. I mean, I don't know if when you read the Bible, my imagination takes over. And I imagine Martha as this wee woman. That's a Northern Irish expression. We have these wee women in Belfast who are more formidable than a panzer wagon tank. If you ever come across a wee woman like that, they, they just have this, this aura about them that says, don't mess with me or I'll knock your block in. And they're quite formidable. In Glasgow, they're called sturdy birdies. And I just picture Martha being this, this wee woman with a formidable reckoning force and she's coming towards Jesus. And if I was Jesus, I'd be going, uh-oh. But he stands there. He waits for her. He absorbs it all. And when she says to him these words, look at verse 21. I don't know how you read this. I don't read this as a criticism of Jesus. I read it as a statement of fact and trust in Jesus. Yes, she's hurt. Yes, she's grieving. But she's still trying to hold on to Jesus as best she can. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, I don't know why you delayed in coming, but... If you'd been here, he would still be alive. I trusted you the power to do these things. But as one commentator said, she had the trust in Jesus as far as the doctors went and what the doctors could do. What Jesus was about to do was beyond even that. Verse 22. Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God, God will give you. Jesus, I trust you. 
You have this relationship with God. I, I trust you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, there's a wonderful ambiguity here in this, isn't there? What does he mean? Does, does he mean like Martha picks up that he will rise at the last day in the resurrection, that when God returns and all the dead and all the graves won't be? Is that what he means? Martha here shows us that her faith was not complete. Her trust in Jesus wasn't fully formed. She was his, and yet she hadn't quite grasped the meaning of who he was. A Christian friend, we can do that with Jesus too. We can make a lot of assumptions, can't we? What's the most dangerous thing in the world to do but to make an assumption about something, isn't it? I'm trying to think of an incident in my life about assumptions, but none. <laughs> we all make assumptions, don't we? Sometimes those assumptions are tragically wrong. Especially in, 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 in the UK, if we assume it's going to be a dry day. Something like that. Here she has formed opinions about Jesus in her head. She trusted him. There was faith there, but it wasn't fully formed. A Christian friend, that's this morning why it's essential that we continually give ourselves to the Word of God, to studying the Word, to looking to see who Jesus is in there. This is a sure and infallible guide to God and His ways. How often do we read it, study it, dwell on it, pray about it, share it with others, feed ourselves in the Word of God and know who He is? Martha, a sad figure who could have saved herself many sighs and tears, but still she does the right thing and goes to Jesus. We've got the situation of death. We have Jesus showing us we need to trust in him in all things, that he has power, power even to defeat the grave and death. We see Martha here as a beautiful picture of coming to him in prayer, even with her faith unformed. And lastly, we have the beautiful, beautiful final I am of Jesus here, verse 25. Not the final, I'm sorry. The final sign of Jesus here is about to happen. This is the climax of all the signs that Jesus did. In John's gospel, there were seven I am's of Jesus and seven signs that he did to prove who he was. This is the final one. But before he does it, he turns to her. And these words, brothers and sisters, I encourage you, followers of Christ, to write on your heart. A friend, if you're here this morning and do not trust him, listen to what he says because nobody else can say this to you. I mean it. Nobody else can say these words that are about to be spoken and that have a changing impact in your life through his power. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am. I am not a fact. I am not a historical thing. I am the person of myself, the resurrection and the eternal life. Let's just pause for that for a minute. Here in this graveyard, here in this desolate scene, what was it Cramer wrote in the Book of Common Prayer? Here in the midst of life, we are surrounded by death. The opposite is true here. Here in the midst of death, there is life. And that life is in a person, the person of God's Son. As he comes up against the wall of this final death, Jesus had raised people from the dead before he'd raised the widow of Nain's son. That was beautiful, but he was only in the grave for one day. Folk could have said, oh, it was a resurrection or a resuscitation or something like that. He'd done all the raisings from the dead, but this one, Four days, in the tomb, no hope. He stands and he says these words. I am the resurrection. What does resurrection mean? To bring back to life. Not resuscitate, but where death reigned, life now enters in. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Only the creator who has the power to sustain all things and who has life in himself can give life and defeat death. Isn't that amazing? Please say yes. 
I am the resurrection and the life. Not only did I bring life out of death, not only did I defeat the final enemy, but I give life everlasting, life forevermore, life that will not end. We heard about this in John chapter 10. I give abundant life to those who trust and follow me, a life that is rich and deep, a life that overcomes the sorrows of this world, that gives us hope in hopeless situations, that impels the young man who was captured to a foreign country, got back home, to go back to the foreign country and serve him in a place of death and bring life. Whoever believes in me, whoever trusts in me and leans on me. What is faith? Faith is trusting in Jesus, taking him on his word and committing yourself to him fully. Death is the final river. Death is the final hurdle. Death is the big one. Whoever believes in me, though he passes into death, yet shall they live. Who else can give you that hope? Muhammad couldn't claim this and he couldn't fulfill it. All the Jewish patriarchs, as great and as good as they were from Abraham all the way through to the last prophets of the Old Testament, none of them could promise everlasting life. Buddha can't do it. Confucius can't do it. All them are in the grave. This person here who promises to be the resurrection of the life, he himself, notice he talks about this in the shadow of Jerusalem, in the shadow of the cross. He can promise this because he would go himself to death and wrestle death and destroy death's power and put him down and rise from the grave three days later, alive forevermore. Death's chain shattered, its power broken for all who would trust in him. This is real, folks. This is reality. This is giving you hope and certainty in this world that even though death may come to you, you will pass through it with Jesus Christ as your guide if you trust in him. And he will bring you to the other side. Remember that beautiful scene in Pilgrim's Progress? How many of you read Pilgrim's Progress? It's a great wee book, isn't it? Written by John Bunyan. He was a good Baptist. So there you go. We're not all bad. He talks about how faithful comes to the river. How faithful goes into the river and it's dark and it's cold and he goes through this cold passage in the river and they're standing on the far shore and as faithful arises, Pilgrim hears the trumpet sound for he is safely home, crossed through the river. Whoever believes in me, though cancer may come against them, though unemployment may come against them, though family losses and griefs that seem overwhelming and though sorrow may lap at their heels, they shall live, and they shall live in me forevermore. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. They shall go to that place I described in Isaiah or 66 and 65, that place where there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, as God brings his new resurrected, created power into this world. As he changes all things, all because of this person, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus personifies this and says to Martha, as he says to you and me this morning, do you believe this? Do you? Not the person beside you. Not the person at the end of the road you're giving a nudge to. Do you believe this? That's why Jesus did this whole thing. And let me give you a wee spoiler for next week. He does raise Lazarus from the dead. And he does that. 
And the reason why he puts Lazarus through that, not because he's cold and callous or because he's playing games with a no, he does that because it is so vital, it is so important for our life and our eternity that we decide what to do with Jesus Christ. He is the final presentation of the God of the universe. He is the final hope of salvation. Only he and he alone is the resurrection and the life, and you must trust in him if you wish to live. If you wish to know this life everlasting, he doesn't quibble about it. He doesn't get politically correct about it. He says, no other name under heaven shall you be saved but through Christ Jesus. So you, friend, this morning, what do you think of Jesus Christ? If you trust him as your Lord and Savior, do you realize that he will carry you through this life and into the next by the power of his Holy Spirit? by the gentleness of his grace, by the transforming renewal that he is at work within you. Once you are in Christ, he pours his eternal life into you. You this morning are walking symbols of resurrection. That's why we baptize people. We plunge them into the water and bring them out, symbolizing their passing into death and rising to newness of life. Are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Are you putting your hope in him? Are you trusting him and living to show others that he is trustworthy? Are you letting his light shine out of you in dark places? Nobody else can do this. Fred, this morning, if you're here and you've heard me, this, this is a lot to take in, especially when you're having to listen to it in a Northern Irish accent. It's a lot to take in. But there is a God who is real, who has revealed himself from Genesis to Revelation. He has made all things. He has made you. He has given you breath in your lungs. He has placed you where he has placed you. He knows you. But you have rebelled against him. You have went your own way. You've said, God, you know what? Actually, you're great, but I can't be bothered following you. I'm going to do my own thing. Your own thing hasn't brought you peace, has it? Your own thing hasn't brought you the comfort you thought it was. Your own thing is actually quite hard. And so God sends Jesus. He pursues us, even though we rebelled against him, still he pursues us and he sends his only son. But whoever, rich or poor, whatever nationality, whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus will defeat the grave. He has defeated it already in Lazarus's life. He defeats it in his own life. And for all who trust in him, he will defeat it in their lives. Nobody else can do this. Will you trust him? Do you believe him this morning? Let us pray. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus. Through the deepest valley, he will lead. Though the night is this I hold. My hope is only Jesus. And we use that word only, Lord, not as dismissive or diminutive. When we say only, it is an encompassing word. You are our hope. We thank you that in the midst of grief and sorrow, you do not show yourself as callous or hard. You love your people. And I pray this morning that if anything I've said about death seems harsh or was flippant, please dismiss that, Lord. But for those who are grieving, may they know that you stand with them in love. As we see next week, you will weep at the grave because death isn't the way it should be. It is not what you created. 
It entered in because of sin. But you will overcome that and destroy it. And you can say with the believer, Grave, where is thy victory, death, thy sting? Thine be the glory. Risen, conquering Son, endless is the victory. Thou over death has won. So comfort those who are grieving with your hope. And for those of us who do trust you and follow you, Lord, in this fellowship, as we go out into these days, as we have seen, as we try and live out our faith in workplaces, in home, in families, in universities, it can be difficult. But with God, all things are possible. So the one who raised Jesus from the dead is at work within us by the power of his Holy Spirit. So this resurrection that we get to witness is actually the power at work within us too through the Holy Spirit. So encourage us on our mission field. Encourage us with those difficult people we're trying to reach with the gospel. You can save and transform. And if any of us here have got bad news from the doctor, are facing circumstances which are grim, Help us know that in death we are not alone and we are still Christ's friend. He has passed through the grave and emerged from the other side and he will take us with him. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And for those in our midst who, this is all new to you, Lord. We thank you that you've brought them here today. We pray your rich blessing and grace upon them. And may you show yourself to them, not as the God they imagine, the God of culture who seems so strange, but the God of the Bible who is personified, who is shown most beautifully and fully in Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, pursue them until they come to you. For in you there is joy and life everlasting. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.